Welcome to another episode of the People Over Perks podcast by Leapsum. In each episode, we speak with a people operations leader about how they're building a high-performance culture in their company. Today, we speak with Jennifer Samrini. Jennifer is an HR business partner at Pinterest. And in this episode, we talk with her about the benefits of having experience in different sized companies and across different cultures, her favorite models and frameworks, including the Griner Curve, and a whole lot more. Enjoy this episode. Okay, Jennifer, thanks for uh, joining us today on the, the People Over Perks podcast. Thanks so much for uh, hopping on the call. Thanks for having me. Excellent. And uh, so to kick off, in a nutshell, I would love to uh, hear a summary from you as to like how you would describe your role at Pinterest. You're an HR business partner, I believe, Correct. but um, I'd love to kind of uh, get an explanation as to like, what does that mean and what falls within your remit? Yeah. So as an HR business partner, I support a specific client group, specifically product and design. Uh, which is part of a broader engineering product and design group at Pinterest. So I have one client that I work with who manages both teams. And within that client group, there are several managers, but really my role is to support um, top line leadership, focusing on strategy, long-term growth, um, anything that sort of falls into the broader um, what will our team look like and how are they going to continue to be successful into the future? Excellent. Thank you. And um, I'd love to, to kind of get started by uh, kind of going through your career path on the, on the route to, uh, to Pinterest, if that's okay. Can you uh, help, sure. uh, help paint the journey for us? Yeah. Um, I started out in HR uh, as a recruiter, actually. And so um, typically HR professionals will start out sort of like as an HR generalist or as a recruiter, um, although there are many times where people pivot into HR. Um, but I was really lucky. I started out as a recruiter at Kaiser Permanente, which is the um, largest HMO in California. And so one of the cool things about working in healthcare is that the majority of the people you work with are women and um, the leadership is primarily women. And that was a really unique experience to be 25 and um, I didn't know anything um, else besides being in a room with these incredible, strong female leaders from the time I was 25 until I was 30. Um, and that was a really transformative experience, um, quite different from what ended up um, sort of as I pivoted into tech. That was a unique experience. But I think starting out in that world was um, kind of the, the best way to launch my career. Um, when when I was 30, I actually um, decided to go back to school. Um, and that was when I actually got my undergraduate degree. So I love talking about that. And I think it's important to talk about because I have a very non-traditional um, non-traditional history with um, moving up in the, in, the, uh, in the career of HR. So I was growing as a recruiter. I kind of hit what I call the paper ceiling. And that is I got so far and then I couldn't grow any further because there was a requirement for an undergraduate degree for any leadership roles. So when I was 30, I actually went back to school and got my undergraduate degree in HR. Um, and I worked for a recruitment process outsourcing firm, which is essentially um, acting as an in-house recruiter, but um, functioning uh, as a consultant. So it was kind of the best of both worlds and I loved it. Um, but after getting my degree, I wanted to move back to the Bay Area and when I arrived, I ended up working for a startup called Just Answer, which at the time was 30 people. And I started as a recruiter, but very quickly because there wasn't um, HR support, HR leadership, um, I 
moved into a director role with Just Answer. And that was an amazing experience. So the startup scaled from 30 to 200 people, um, which is the, the great scale up story, which we love to hear. Um, and then I realized that there was this gap in my career, which is I had no international experience, no international understanding. And so I chose to work for a company called Sitecore, which was based out of Copenhagen. Um, and that was a unique experience as an American suddenly being dropped into um, this world where um, the culture was different. People sort of thought differently about how to um, support teams, what a great um, contributor within your team looked like, how um, you grew in your career path, what the education levels were. I mean, everything is just quite different from the United States. Um, and that was this eye-opening experience. And I loved it. And I wanted more of it. And it became very clear, though, that this was a gap. And that if I wanted to continue growing in HR, I needed to have broader cultural understanding. And that wasn't going to come just from reading a book. It needed to be more immersive. And so I made the decision to go back to school and did, decided to do that in Europe. Um, and I, I, you know, some, some people know this, some don't. Most MBA programs are in English, no matter which country they're in. So getting an MBA is the best way as an American, because as a true American, I only spoke one language, um, that, that I could kind of get this broader experience, um, this cultural immersion, um, and still be able to um, continue on my career. So applied to the University of Mannheim in Germany, was accepted. And then it was sort of a whirlwind from there of getting my MBA. I did start to learn German um, and then eventually was recruited by a company called Contentful, which at that time was quite small, about a hundred people in Berlin, but is now you know headquartered uh, and, and multinational and, and uh, just a, a real juggernaut in the CMS space. That was an amazing experience. I actually recommend when, when I speak with other HR professionals, you need, you need to have this experience of living and working in another country. Um, I struggled tremendously to think through how to take people practices and programs and make them successful in a country where um, I couldn't read some of the contracts. I couldn't necessarily understand everything um, that I was reading. Berlin is an incredibly multinational city, multicultural city. So most of my employees, and we had 52 different nationalities and ethnicities within the building. Um, and then taking that in, and broadening into, we actually spun up our San Francisco office while I was there. So all of a sudden, everything old was new again, right? So I had to take what we were doing in Germany and bring it back to America. I think a great example of that is... Um, the education stipend that is so common in Germany, everyone, I mean, it's just, the, it's just accepted that you get this, you know, you're going to have an education stipend and you're going to use it. And, and this is, it's actually quite uncommon in America. Um, it is done, but it's, it's not as common and people aren't sure how to use it. Um, and so how do you convey the importance of something like that? How do you convey why it's important to contentful and why it's important to the growth of the organization um, so there were all these sort of challenges that came up coming back to America, as it were. Interesting. I think, thanks for yeah. sharing that. I think, um, yeah, I mean, super interesting, as you were saying, about hitting this paper ceiling where uh, yes. 
And I'm, I'm sure you've probably got many, uh, many opinions on uh, on the um, pros and cons, or obviously using university degrees as a signal for uh, for hiring. I, you know, I I do think um, it's interesting when I was in Europe, and in particular, like I said, Copenhagen was sort of my first destination outside of the U.S. And everyone in the room had master's degrees. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone had done internships. It was just sort of commonplace to have an advanced degree, which is unique um, versus America. I do think that the the sort of normalcy of advanced education is ultimately a positive for other countries. And I think it's an area where America certainly um, could use some additional support in the future. Um, I think we're getting there, but um, people are also, um, it's so expensive. I mean, one of my favorite topics uh, over a glass of wine with, um, with people in Europe was to ask them, how much do you think it costs to um, get your, get your master's degree? How much do you think it costs to have a baby? I mean, there's just healthcare costs, et cetera. And so it's just a different cost structure. Um, But it, the, the parity and this sort of, um, equity of education across um, Europe and, of course, the Nordic regions. I was always impressed by that, and I think it ultimately is a, a positive um, for the countries. Yeah, so interesting. And um, and obviously, you've uh, yeah been been on quite a, a wild ride then with a number of different different businesses. And uh, yes. I'd love to hear whether you have any kind of uh, frameworks in mind or decision making criteria that you've used along the way to help you evaluate different opportunities. Um, as you've kind of made those uh, made those moves from one place to the next? Yeah. Um, in evaluating opportunities, I typically look for um, outstanding leadership that I'm going to be partnering with. Um, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. Um, I, um, I love being around really smart, really ambitious leaders. Um, and I look for that drive within organization as well do they hire um do they hire for potential do they understand the future of the product are they able to articulate sort of where they're heading is the vision there um in speaking with organizations where they're struggling with articulating their vision or what their competitive advantage is i mean we all have those times in developing our product or organization but if if they're unable to articulate that, if we're unable to have a conversation about here's where the future goes, it's very difficult for me to then develop an HR strategy that supports that. So um, I do find I'm more successful when um, I join companies that have a vision and are executing on that vision, even if it pivots, um, at least being able to articulate that and recognize in the environment where um, their unique value proposition is or um, being willing to pivot when things are difficult I mean, those are sort of all the pieces I look for. There aren't specific frameworks that I've used necessarily. It's a little bit of gut instinct and a little bit of, um, is there a connection? Yeah, interesting. And, um, and and very tangibly, like, do you literally just have those kinds of like questions in mind when you then meet the, uh, you know, the potential C-levels that you're going to be working with? Or um, how do you kind of extract that information from uh from a company before before you join? <laughs> As a classic recruiter, I have a ton of behavioral interview questions that I'm basically using when I'm in an interview. So um, I'll ask, tell me about a time when, you know, you worked with an HR person where it didn't work out. What was, what was sort of missing? What were the big challenges? Or um, 
when you think about the future of the organization, what are you, um, how are you picturing that your team developing? Is everybody who's here right now still here? Or are you expecting to see some turnover? And therefore, like, how are you thinking about uh, the long-term recruiting strategy, et cetera? Um, oftentimes, leaders haven't necessarily thought about this. So these questions are um, somewhat new, but listening to their response gives you a sense of sort of how they think about those challenges and what they expect from the person that they're hiring. Mm, yeah, interesting. And um, I'd, I'd love to dive into the, uh, the the fact that you then took an MBA as well. Um, yeah. What kind of led you to that decision? And and not then, and then after having completed the MBA, um, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think you what do you think that gave you? And do you think that's given you particular strengths over, um, you know, perhaps other people who haven't been through that experience? Um, you know, the decision to go back to school was sort of based on two pieces. One was the cultural piece of, um, and in fact, when I worked with CEOs, um, with the CEO that I was working with, um, when I was leaving Sitecore, I, I sort of had this conversation of like, oh, I'm going to go to Germany and I'm going to get my MBA. And the, the overwhelming response was very positive. And then when I actually talked to a, a former executive from another company, he was like, why would you leave America and go to another country? I mean, what is it? Go to, go to Stanford or Berkeley. Everybody goes to Stanford or Berkeley. So for, for me, part of it was I'm not going to be able to really support a global organization if I don't have this cultural understanding. And the best way to do that is to get out of my um, little Silicon Valley world. Um, the second piece was I would support my client and they would be chatting with their CFO. Um, sometimes my client was the CFO and they would start talking about terms where I was like writing down. I don't know what they're saying. I think a great example is WAC, which is weighted adjusted cost of capital. And I remember I heard someone say it and we were talking about, um, we were talking about funding and he was talking about WAC. And I was thinking, W-A-C-K, like, what is this? Um, That's a good example of some, I can't really support my clients if I don't understand what they're talking about. Um, I will say my MBA was really tough. I was in the room with people who had significant business and financial backgrounds. Um, I did really well at the org psych class. I didn't do so well at financial basics. I had to take um, sort of the support classes to even do well enough to understand uh, the basics. I will say that I now understand what WAC is and how to calculate it. I don't think I could do it uh, without a primer, but I could do it. Um, But the important piece is as HR leaders, we're challenged constantly to match our clients and be able to support them and be able to understand um, where their biggest challenges are. And the language of business is not really covered in getting your undergrad in HR. So to learn that language, like any, like learning any new language, I, I think going to school is the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think, um, yeah, you've hit on two really interesting points there with the fact that, you know, having that cultural experience um, and yeah. you know, uh, mixing with different uh, like nationalities and learning how business is done a- across cultures is, is super interesting. Um, and then also, you know, being able to um, you know, speak the lingo um, and, uh, you yeah. know, being able to match the needs of the business. Um, and are there any other um, pieces of career advice that you find yourself frequently giving other 
um, HR professionals or, um, you know, what, what other tips or um, hints have you given along the way to help people progress in their career? So I, I just had this conversation with someone yesterday. I am, I am model and framework um, intensive. Uh, what I mean by that is I have a model of framework for everything. Um, I have a framework for having difficult conversations with your employees. I have a framework for um, developing as a leader. I talk in frameworks and tool sets constantly. I think one of the challenges of HR is articulating to the business without um, talking about is sort of talking about the topics that are related to their teams in a way that is visionary instead of in a way that is risk focused. All of this is about mitigating risk. And there's an additional piece of once you've mitigated the risk, you sort of develop the, sorry, at home and dogs and kids, and we're just all, we're going to all lean into it. Um, thinking about creating that conversation for vision, but also articulating what the risk is. And I think the best way to do that is speaking through frameworks and talking about um, how to use those tool sets and frameworks in a way that evolves the business and supports growth. Um, but I am, I am definitely, um, I think every HR person should have at least three or four frameworks that they use regularly and are in their back pocket. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and I'd also love to touch on the uh, the topic of um, sort of like startups and scale ups. Obviously, you had mm -hmm. that experience um, both with yeah. Contentful and uh, and you know with um, with your other previous experience. Um, and having now also worked with businesses like Pinterest, um, mm -hmm. how how do you think about the you know the pros and cons of working in each types of business? And uh, you know what are the some of the the big differences that you see um, and yeah. how, how would you advise somebody if they were then weighing up their options between uh, opportunities in, in, uh, in each? Yeah. So um, I think it's an advantage to have different experiences, obviously, because that's my background. Um, working with scale ups means that you're deep into the operations and deep into the tactics in a way that you aren't necessarily when you have centers of expertise that you're relying on the advantage of coming from the startup world is that i understand what my centers of expertise are struggling with right so if i'm speaking with my recruiting leader or i'm speaking with um, the l d team i have implemented not to the degree of a you know multinational 3000 person company, but I have implemented programs related to L&D. Um, I understand recruiting. I have the sort of like basics of how to conduct an investigation. Do I need to do that investigation? Not necessarily. Now, with that said, working at a scale up means that I do have more hands-on um, and just general influence across each of those practices. So um, if I feel like, um, I'm seeing my leaders struggle in a particular way, and I think we need a new L and D intervention and I'm at a scale up, that's just a, a matter of, um, sort of articulating that business need, presenting it, managing the change and implementing in a larger company, I have to influence I have to articulate the need, go back to the business. I might hear no, I may need to find an alternative way to support the business in the meantime. Um, it's it, you need to really start practicing your influence skills um, in, a, in a very real and very tactical way. So it's, 
it's different. Um, I, but I think, I think they complement one another. Um, I think I can understand the business more effectively because I've had this experience that was at a hundred person company. Um, and I, I think that um, when I am advising my client and they're talking about where the challenges are, I can understand that they started this business at a hundred people. So I remember what it was like back then, even though I wasn't here. I think one of the challenges of HR is you come into a business and this is the house you live in, but it's not the house you built. <laughs> so you have to live in this house. You have to figure out, you have to understand what went into building it and understanding those, uh, that history, even if you weren't there is really important. Super interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Um, and, uh, and, and you, you mentioned that, ha- that, uh, you know, kind of throwing yourself in the deep end with having, um, experience in different cultures and how you, how you yourself struggled initially, you know, with your role at Contentful, where, you know, you had these contracts to read that you couldn't read and, and so on. Um, do you, do you now have any kind of shortcuts as it were, um, to help, uh, help people get up to speed in, in that sort of environment, um, or perhaps learnings that, um, that, you know, you took from your experience that you could then, um, you know, help somebody, you know, kind of navigate their way to being fully ramped up quicker than perhaps you were, you were able to yourself. um having a lot of empathy for yourself I think is the part (laughs) that people miss um and then really educating yourself about other cultures I think the culture map or the culture code I think those are those are great ways to sort of like understand how other cultures think about and are challenged um in their own ways and how their history has influenced that um but there's also um a, a lot of leveraging your team. So when I couldn't read a contract or I couldn't understand something, I knew that I had to leverage my team more effectively to tell me if there was something I was missing because I I couldn't necessarily read everything. I think more so than the contracts though, because you sort of, you know, you can, you can sort of effectively mitigate that over the time, uh, over time with sort of like tactical solutions. I think the, the, the next step though is how do I operate in this culture in a way that's effective? Um, German culture is just different than American culture and motivating employees and supporting employees is different. Um, the expectations of the employees in the U S, um, is that they are going to see a different company every two years and they're along with you for a period of time. Um, and I'm speaking very broadly, by the way, in generalisms, but more generally, um, your employees in other countries are expecting like, how am I going to stay in this career and continue to grow at this company for a longer period of time? Now the globalism that has come with sort of like the tech influence and like what we now call Silicon LA, which is like, you know, Berlin um, is that we're starting to see more movement, more sort of like recognition of, Oh, there are other opportunities and I'm going to move around. But at the crux of that is still a um, expectation that, they're going to be supported during their time in a way that is a little bit different than U.S. employees will expect. So I think engagement surveys are one way to really make sure that you're sort of doubling down on understanding where your employees' concerns are. I think the next piece is performance evaluations, make sure, making sure you're giving um, employees are receiving timely feedback, timely support. And then 
they're actually creating their future, right? So they're going to dictate to you in whatever culture they're in, how they want to move forward, how they want to be supported, then making sure you listen and respond to that. Yeah, I think uh, it sounds like obviously there's still some some difference across uh, across cultures between what's accepted as like you know, the tour of duty, um, you know, where yes. it's kind of known that you're coming in to do a specific job for a specific set, yeah. you know, period of time um, versus the, uh, the sort of like long term career growth with one specific company. Um, right. And uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's very different to um, you know in Silicon Silicon Valley or other tech cultures than uh, than perhaps more yeah. traditional companies. Yeah. Absolutely, I think um, it is interesting though. I, I think that the the sort of the globalism that's happening, I think there will be sort of an equalizing over the over the next maybe 20, 30 years, where I think the expectations will become more similar. Um, I'm super curious about what that's going to look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and you mentioned that you have a framework and a uh, you know a process for everything, and yeah. uh, and we we were chatting beforehand and you you mentioned the Griner curve um, yeah. as uh, as one of your favorites. Um, can you tell the audience about that? What give kind of sure. a paint, paint a picture because obviously uh, we can't look at it right now. But uh, we can't. yeah, if you could uh, kind of give us a, an overview as to what what that model is. So the Griner curve identifies sort of the natural curve of organizations as they grow and. What that means is um, in the beginning, it's all about creativity. It's a great example. So that's sort of like level one, you know, the, the founder and the, the original employees, it's all about being creative and finding that niche and iterating and there's an excitement. But then after a period of time, there becomes um, crisis point. Uh, crisis sounds negative, but the reaction, the actual sort of like crux of it is over time, to move to sort of the next level, even to grow as an organization, whether that's employee growth, revenue growth, et cetera, you have to start putting processes in place. So what you'll find is people who were sort of had this like ultimate freedom and creativity now start to see some processes come into place. And there's a reaction to that in the business. And there are continual crisis points. There's about, I think, I think there are like five levels of the Griner curve. Um, there are specific crisis points that are outlined and you as an employee will feel it. And as a manager, will hear it from your employees. I don't have as much freedom. I'm not as happy as I was. This place is changing. I mean, it happens in every business and managers will react to that in different ways. And my goal with my clients is always for them to be able to have a self-awareness that is, um, that is reflective of the reality, but maybe taking some of the emotion out of it because it can feel pretty bad as a leader, thinking specifically in these like companies that are pivoting from you know 30 to 200 to see one of your original engineers quit. That is really jarring. And what you'll see businesses do sometimes is sort of have this reaction, like, okay, nobody can leave. We have to keep these original engineers. They are the lifeblood of this company. We are going to keep them forever. Showing, sharing sort of like um, what that transition means for the organization and how organizations naturally sort of evolve over time. And then asking questions of the business of like, where are we going? Now that we've seen this, you know, we, we can't have this ultimate creativity, ultimate freedom. What is this going to this next level going to look like? How do we make sure that we're still supporting original employees with creative solutions? while scaling the business and adding in more layers of complexity, 
Um, there's another um, sort of crisis point, which is around um, red tape. And that typically happens in larger organizations where you've sort of like put all these pieces in and now it's bit like absolute bureaucracy mayhem. And um, companies like Google have addressed this by um, creating what they call bureaucracy busters, which are people um, that are specifically focused on finding where um, these areas of sort of um, bureaucracy are stopping the business and keeping them from growth, growth and unraveling those. Well, all of that bureaucracy came into being because at each of the crisis points, we put pieces into place that made sense at the time. And do they still make sense? By using something like a model, you take some of the emotion out of it and you can see that other companies have struggled with this and sort of correlate it back. And in the same way that I just shared with you about Google, I think understanding the business landscape and how they've, how other companies have sort of responded to these issues in the past is really powerful for leaders to be able to take some of the emotion of my original engineer just left out of it and start to execute um, in a way that feels more, um, Okay. The word I keep wanting to use is emotionless. It's not it, but just not making decisions from a place of emotion, understanding this is the natural course of business and this is where we're headed and we have to sort of stay focused on the vision. Excellent. And, uh, and so I, I assume that can be applied to any business, any stage, any team. Um, and I imagine you also have kind of different teams at the different phases of the Griner curve within you know, the larger organization as well. Oh, Andy, you nailed it. I mean, there are there are sort of emerging uh, teams that are still in the creativity phase in 10,000 person companies. And where this becomes a challenge is making sure that the centers of expertise are supporting those employees that are maybe in one of the emerging products groups in a way that makes sense for them while still supporting the rest of the business as um, they're trying to unravel the red tape. So. It, it is, it's a dance. It's a real nuanced dance. Um, sometimes when I have client groups that say, um, well, you know, how I manage my team is different than how she manages her team. And, and we're just very, very different. I'll use the curve to actually say, do you think maybe she is needing to delegate more because of where she is on the curve? What is different? Why, why is that team sort of operating in a different way? And by having something that, again, is outside of themselves and not personal and isn't based on um, maybe a negative experience that they've had, I find that objectivity can lead to in sort of like tremendous solutions and results. And, and do you find that leaders are usually pretty good at identifying where their teams are on the curve? Or do you sometimes find that, you know, it takes a, it takes a, you know, a, a mirror, mirror to be held up for them to really understand? Um. I do. I mean, I, maybe I've been lucky to just work with amazing leaders, but my leaders that I've shown the curve to, there's this aha moment. And I do feel like they accurately articulate where they are. And I haven't had, I, I just feel like I've been really lucky to work with some amazing leaders over time where they've, they've shown me their own models and I share models with them and we sort of have a great repartee and they're self-aware enough, but I think some of that is also identifying companies where I'm working with leaders that are self-aware because I think that's, again, so important. Um, if, if someone identified, oh, I think we're at this stage and I felt strongly, I think this is where the influencing of the HRBP, and I talk about this a lot, um, 
how to be an effective influencer is very, very important and influencing in a way that um, is acknowledging their experience and then at the same time holding space for um, other realities and sort of exploring those with your client. I think that's just really important and a key um, a key skill for an, a great HRV group. And do you have any uh, any resources or tips for anybody who is looking to uh, to learn how to become better influencing? Um, I think mindfulness is probably your best bet. Um, I do believe in meditation and mindfulness as a, being a big part of being a fantastic influencer. Um, I think sometimes influencing is somehow conflated with manipulation. Um, I think instead it's just holding space for a lot of different um, opinions, a lot of different ideas, and then using strategies to figure out which of those opinions or ideas are the best for the business, the best for the employees, and are ultimately getting us to our goal. Um, So mindfulness is helpful and a lot of Socratic practice, a lot of tell me more. And what if you did have the answer to this problem? What would that look like? I talk about models again. Um, I think Fierce Conversations, um, which is a fantastic book that I highly recommend everyone read. Fierce Conversations, Mineral Rights Model, which is a model for really getting to the, the, the crux of an issue. The idea is that when you're mining, you want to go as deep as possible. So really going deeper and deeper and deeper with your client. I use that model all the time in conversations with my leaders. And I find it to be a really effective way to make sure we're talking about the most important things and then also deep diving far enough into the issue that we're able to actually come up with the best solution. I love that. I love that. Excellent. And um, and so thinking about um, sort of HR challenges, like very broadly, are there any particular challenges that you wish you could wave a magic wand and have solved? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what are some of the some of the thorniest issues that you think uh, kind of exist uh, for, for HR professionals that, um, yeah, that you, you wish there was a, a good solution for? Not so much waving a magic wand because I don't have a solution for it, but I think the HRBP model as originally developed, I think it was developed in like 2009. I remember first reading about it and being like, oh, HR is finally getting a seat at the table. Um, I think we need to be doing more around that. So we have a seat at the table. Now what? Um, where I have seen HR professionals struggle is getting a seat at the table, but then not necessarily driving the vision, but just executing on what the leadership says is important. Um, again, back to the influence piece, but I think iterating on the HRBP model and continuing to evolve what it means to be a support to the business and an advisor, a partner to your client I think that's so important. Um, Again, my current manager and I actually had a walk yesterday, socially distanced with masks on. But one of the things she said, which has just been rolling around in my head is, what does it mean to be a partner? Like the last word in HR business partner is partner. What does that mean? And your partner is someone who you sometimes might disagree with and that you also support. And that is... Um, more, more sort of like broadly, someone you're, you're, you're really next to and, and walking next to, not behind, not in front of. And so getting that balance right, getting that rhythm right, 
I think that's probably um, where I see a tremendous amount of opportunity for HR business partners in the future. But again, I can't wave a magic wand because I don't, I don't know what the, the sort of like perfect space looks like. I think it continues to evolve. And the fact that that model, you know, was developed over 10 years ago and still has so much opportunity and is continuing to be iterated on, I think is um, commendable. And, um, and I think when I, when I sort of think about that, that word HR business partner, I think there's just so much more to be doing there. Excellent. And, uh, and, and final question to, uh, to round out. Um, so shifting yeah. from the problems to the, to the things that you're particularly excited about. Um, yeah. what, are, what are some of the developments that you think are, are you know, truly uh, you know, pushing new ground in HR and where, where, are, you, uh, where are you looking forward to you know, things heading? Yeah. Well, I think we're all, COVID has put us all in this new space, hasn't it? Future of work is suddenly so important and so different than where we thought it would be. Um, but I also think that in America in particular, and, and I, I imagine that um, in Europe, it's also the same, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, just general social justice work that has been done over the last year um, and the progress that we've seen means that employees are, are really expecting their organizations to step up and, and be a part of the solution in a way that we didn't necessarily see in the past. And that means for employees also having more control over their career and their growth. I mean, we see so many digital nomads now. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to grow with an organization? Um, I'll throw one more model in and that's 70, 20, 10, which is um, how people, it's a learning model and how people basically um, evolve their skills over time. 70% of it is experiential. So like on the job learning, and then 20% of it is sort of that social piece, like mentors and your boss, and then 10% of it's like the formal piece. And I'm seeing more and more employees like recognize that 70, 20, 10 is so important. And they're making sure they're taking on projects and they're making sure that they're having experiences that really round up that 70 and not just waiting for the formal training. Um, I, I love that. I, I am so inspired by, um, by our employees, by having these conversations with team members um, who are taking control of their careers and recognizing patterns of systems that don't support them um, and, and sort of breaking those. So it's just been, it's been an amazing time to work in tech and I continue to be inspired by these employees. Amazing. And that, that's, a, yeah. that's a great, great note to end on. So Jennifer, thank you so much for, uh, for the conversation today. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Over Perks by Leapsum. We're available on the Leapsum YouTube channel and all major podcasting platforms so you can hit subscribe to receive each episode as it's released. We also have an email newsletter and a Slack community where you'll find great resources and discussions on how to build a high-performing, humane and diverse company culture. You can find the link in the show notes or you can head to the resources section at leapsum.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.